What an awesome, awesome morning. Uh, I just have one question of Bob, wh where are you? Do you really have a dog named Fluffy? Oh, okay. We were over here around the corner, we said, did he say Fluffy? No. You, you've done Iron Man like six times or something like that? I wouldn't think you'd have a dog named Fluffy. Okay, good, I just wanted to get that. Hey, why do people resist the call to follow Jesus? Why? Why do people resist the call to follow Jesus? Now, just take this room filled with people. There are more accomplished people in this room, more smart people in this room, more people who have, have done outrageous things. At the risk of embarrassing you, I could go around and just say all the things I know that you've done that are off the chart, impressive, fantastic. And so, obviously, people don't resist Jesus because they don't do great things. If I went around this, this room and said, uh, let me point out all the people who have zillions of degrees after their name, who've invented things, who run amazing organizations, uh, we'd put to rest the idea that uh, people who follow Jesus aren't people who aren't very smart. If I went around and said, I want to talk about some of the exploits, the incredible bravery of, of people who have been warriors on the front lines of evil in the world uh, around uh, in this room, uh, we would put to rest the idea that, well, you know, People who follow Jesus must be really weak people. They're not very resourceful. You ever ask yourself the question, what is it that causes people to resist the call to follow Jesus? Because all the normal categories don't fit in this room. Uh, the normal ca categories, we don't fit anywhere because as you start talking to people, you realize, wow, some of the smartest people, most successful people, most humble people, most honest people, most whatever people you'll ever meet are people who say, because I follow Jesus. My life only makes sense because I follow Jesus. And so as I've wrestled with this question this week, why do people resist the call to follow Jesus? After what you've heard prayed and sung, doesn't it, it give you a deep sense that Jesus is up to something? And, and I'd like to be a part of it. Uh, I tell you why. The, the, the thought that's come to my mind uh, over the past week as I've thought about this is, we resist the call to follow Jesus because we're in denial about our condition. We're in denial about our condition. We don't recognize our desperate need for what God alone can provide. We don't recognize that we have an absolute, unequivocal need for his absolute, unequivocal grace. There once lived two really mean uh, and ornery brothers. Uh, they were very successful, but they were devious. Uh, they were no respecter of people. Uh, they kept their own counsel. They, they played off one another. They were bullies. They were uh, very, very powerful uh, economically in every way. And uh, one of the brothers died. And they lived in a, in a small town uh, filled with churches. And so uh, the remaining brother uh, went to each church and said, hey, look, uh, I don't, I don't really believe this stuff, and I don't go to the church, obviously, but I want you to do a service for my brother, and I'll give you $10,000 if you do that. All you have to say is, he was a saint. Well, you know, all the churches said, there's just no way we can do that, until he came to this one church, really much like our church. Um, Uh, 
there, by the way, if you're visiting, I just got to give you the disclaimer. There are no normal people in this church. So just, it just I, I've said it. It's out there. Do with it what you will. Uh, so they came to this hapless pastor and said, look, I, I want you to do this service for my brother and uh, I'll give you 10 grand. And the pastor said, you know, you don't need to give us 10 grand. But you have to say, and he was a saint. He said, fine. So he gets up, and, and now the, the whole city hears that this is going to happen. So the, the, it's, you think it's packed today? Uh, it was people outside. They couldn't wait to hear what this pastor was going to do about this because this was outrageous. And so as the pastor got up and welcomed everybody, he said, hey, let me just acknowledge right up front. We're here uh, to bury a, a, an evil man. This man is nobody's idea of, of a good guy. He has offended many of you, taken advantage of you. You know what a bad, rotten guy he is, right? They like, amen, hey, yeah, absolutely, yeah, oh. But compared to his brother, <laughs> he is a saint. We live in denial of our condition. We think all we have to do is be better than some other person. And we don't even have to be better. We just have to convince ourselves and them and everybody around them that we're better. It's that silly joke about the two guys when the bear comes out and the one guy stops to put his tennis shoes on. What are you doing? You'll never outrun the bear. I know. I just need to outrun you, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a comparative game. And the problem is it falls so far short because the God who comes after us, seeking us, is so magnificent. It's so beyond anything that we could imagine or aspire to being compared to. It's laughable. It would be laughable, but it's heartbreaking. Because you can compare me to pretty much anybody, and they would be considered a saint. So it's the wrong measure. From Genesis to Revelation, God tells us his purpose for the world. The Bible opens up with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to describe that God created us to be in a relationship with him, giving us a responsibility to care for this magnificent world that he has created. Then the Bible closes with this statement. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. This, this Bible that, that emerges uh, out, of, out of history is rooted in geography uh, is, is so uh, amazing and that written over a long period of time by many, many authors. It's a unified literary whole. I ran into a guy this week. Uh, it's funny, I hadn't seen this guy in forever and we were in a little hole-in-the-wall uh, Mexican food place in Chula Vista and, and ran into each other. He teaches at UCLA and a phenomenal teacher and we were talking about the Bible and, and, and his deal on the Bible is it's, it's, it emerges out of history. It's rooted in geography, it's a unified li literary whole, and it's the Word of God. He teaches this at UCLA, and, and, and in Malibu, and in Santa Monica, and he has hundreds of people coming every week to these Bible studies that he teaches. So we know that uh, something is going on in this Bible, and what does this Bible tell us? That there's a God who has come after us. And so in between that opening and that closing of the Bible, it tells a story of our desperate condition. The first couple chapters looking really good. We're given this responsibility to look over the earth. Chapter 3, everything blows up. We rebel against God, go our own way, and that then becomes a sad, sad tale of human history. It's beautiful, it's sad, heroic, inspiring, heartbreaking, hope-filled, 
And at some point, people just say, maybe hopeless, because even if all these accomplished people in this room achieved every one of their goals, at the end of the day, you still have a sense of, is that all there is? This is the haunting thing that, that the most successful people discover. And the people who don't have anything, who oftentimes come to know God, think they're supposed to aspire to those things until somebody says, no, what you have is what I want. That peace that passes understanding. So the Bible reveals that God cares about us and the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. I said earlier this week, because of the mess, God sent a Messiah. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes into our world to clean up the mess, to restore us to a relationship with God. And so Easter, this wonderful day uh, that, we, that we celebrate. Uh, and by the way, for some of you who are not used to coming to church uh, and, and you come Christmas and Easter, I think that's awesome. It's a good start. For those of you, it's Easter. Hey, I just want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. I'll see you at Christmas. And, <laughs> and we'll continue the conversation. Or come back next week and we'll continue the conversation. Because we have a lot to talk about. Easter is the cross-shaped stake in the ground, marking God's claim to this world. This is God's world. We pretend that it's our world, but it's God's world. And God is redeeming this world, even as he wants to redeem us. And so history does not go on forever in the sense that it's a cycle, a circle. It goes on forever to a conclusion where God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And he wants every one of us to be a part of that. So God cares about us and the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. He called a man named Abram, Abraham, later, promising to make him a great nation and a blessing to all the earth's families. It's God's intent to bless you and your family. Now, as I look back at my family life, I've grown up, uh, gosh, that would be hard to imagine. Catholic dad, Protestant mom, neither of them believers, fighting about religion. And, and they called it a truce, and so that meant I got to play baseball on Sunday because it was too much chaos, fighting about, what something, about something they didn't really believe. So when I finally picked up the Bible and started reading it, I realized, wow, God wants to bless all the families of the earth. That's amazing. God wants to give us life in all its fullness. That's outrageous. God wants to make us new creations in Christ so that we can not only experience his impact, but have an impact in his name. I want to be part of that, but I don't want to be religious. And the Bible told me, you don't, you're not being called to be religious. I'm calling you to be alive. Because what the world needs are not more religious people. The world needs more alive people in Christ. And so God raised up prophets and priests and kings and formed a nation to declare his glory among the nations. And though they failed him, he never failed them. He kept uh, his promise made in his covenant that I would never leave you and forsake you. I will fulfill this promise to redeem humankind. Why? Why? Because he cares. How much does he care? He cares that much. Nailed to a cross that he didn't have to be on, but he came so that we would have the life we were created to have. Across socioeconomic boundaries, cultural boundaries, it's not a Western thing, it's not an Eastern thing, it's not a rich thing, it's not a poor thing, it's a human thing given to us as a gift by the God who made us in his image so that we could experience life fully. And so he promised a savior and set in motion a plan to redeem and transform the world. And so Jesus, God himself, comes into the world. Now, what I love about this, 
When I first, as a, as, a, as a late high school kid, started reading the Bible just so that I could, I could defend myself against the nutcases that would come up to me and try to tell me about Jesus. Uh, if you're surfing off Pleasure Point in Santa Cruz, it says, Jesus surfs. That really ticked me off. That somebody put that kind of graffiti on the seawall. And guys that come, you get out of the water, guys that come up to you, hey man, you heard about Jesus? And you go, hey man, have you heard about a hospital? Get out of my face, you know? I mean, it's not violent, it's just it's annoying. Because all these drugged out people tell me about, me about Jesus. And so just to be, to be on uh, a step ahead of them, I started reading about it. I was shocked by what I read. It was the most radical, irresistible thing I ever read. That God came seeking us and bringing us into a relationship with him. So we wouldn't need to write Jesus surfs. We just get to surf with Jesus. Because he'd be in us. And this was shocking to me. The writer of Hebrews, one of the books at the back of the New Testament, a Jewish leader, follower of Jesus, said it this way, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, in these most recent days, the writer is saying, he has spoken to us by his son. So the way the Bible describes God coming into the world, we don't have categories for this. Which is it? God in the world, God in the world? Okay, think of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. It all belongs to Jesus. And through whom also he made the universe. All things were made through Christ. This, this is a category my mind was so small. I, I, it was overwhelming to me trying to think about it. And the Son is the radiance, the reflection of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. The visible expression of the invisible God. Radical, disruptive, unique, attractive in every way. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Just him saying the word makes it so. We use words to obscure things. We use words carefully to obscure things, to finesse things. Jesus uses words to reveal things, to heal things, to make things more real than they ever were before he spoke them into being. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Wow. Now, I've, I've noticed, and I noticed this before I started reading the Bible so I could refute all the people who uh, were telling me about it. But once I read it, and realized this is true, then I wanted more of it. And, and, and so by now I'm in college, and, I, and, and after college I wanted to go study it. I wanted to study it in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and I wanted to be able to understand how true this is. And along the way I noticed that, that, that everybody was telling me how to get saved. You wear these kind of clothes, it'll save you. In fact, you use this kind of detergent to wash those clothes, it'll save you. If you drive this kind of a car, if you have this kind of a degree, if you make this much money, if you live here, if you do that, if you know them, if you believe these things. And some of the crazy things that people were telling me to believe that before I started reading the Bible, I thought, that sounds pretty good. Because what my criteria for pretty good was, I can do whatever I want and I get to feel spiritual. I get to do everything I want to do whenever I want to do it. And then I get to claim spirituality. That is a perfect thing. But I realized ultimately it's an empty thing. Then I found out what really saves us, and here's why. Because Jesus lived and died for our sins. Jesus, the only perfect man, 
Perfect man, perfect God, all in one. Because he died for my sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now reigns in glory, promising to return and make all things new. Because Jesus reigns as Lord, we can be saved. I learned that all the things that I was being told would save me, a good education, the right job, fell, fell, fell so far, far short. All good in their own way, but not complete. They couldn't go the distance. So to say that you can be saved is an open-ended statement. But if you want to make that a complete statement, it's this way. You can be saved. Here's how. Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, he's, he can be your Savior. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He does not need our permission to be that. But because he's given us volition, the capacity to choose to say yes or no, we get this incredible honor to say, please come into my life. I want to claim your forgiveness for me. And it's not just a life that looks backwards, uh, I'm forgiven. But rather it's a life that says, because I'm forgiven, I can live fully in the present and be transformed. I can be transformed as I walk with this living God, this loving God, whose truth cuts to the center of me. Uh, you know, I, all of us should have a really well-developed crap detector. That's a, that's a technical term, by the way. <laughs> so when somebody starts lying to you, you should go, whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> Here's where it breaks down. We all have one, and to one degree or another, it's pretty well-developed. Here's where it breaks down. We are better at lying to ourselves. So when you lie to yourself, your detector goes, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> Is that my watch? Couldn't have been me lying to me, no. See, so what God does is says, walk with me and my word will show you what is true about you, around you, in you, and through you. And this is the truth. God has given us life now and forever. And this life is in his son. If you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son of God, you do not have that life. You're still in that muddle walking around saying, I wonder if this will save me. I wonder if this will save me. And so this is the good and great news of Easter. God turns sinners into saints because he is risen. Because he's risen. In the Greek Orthodox Church, they say, Christos Anesti, Christ has risen. And then the answer, answer is, Alithos Anesti. How many of you are Greeks? Okay, did I say it right? Now can I come to lunch at your house because Greek, really, Greek food is really, really good. Uh, some of you heard me tell a story. Uh, last May, I was sitting at the commencement ceremony at USC. My youngest daughter was walking through that, and uh, somebody was getting up to do, a religion professor was getting up to, uh, I guess, do an invocation, an opening prayer, but because apparently this professor didn't really believe in prayer, he kind of, under the, under the heading of doing the invocation, just does, tells his rambling story. I thought maybe we, we were related or something, because he was telling this rambling story, and then... Um, <laughs> He starts talking about Louis Zamperini. Have you read the book Unbroken and the amazing guy? And he's, he's talking about, he's invoking Louis Zamperini because he had just died. He was a USC alum and had done all these great things. But he wants to make this point. He says, you know, Louis Zamperini uh, uh, hit the skids in his life and went into a very dark place and he's beyond all hope. But an amazing thing happened to him. He forgave himself. I'm like, what? Yeah, he went to a Billy Graham crusade. And he met Jesus, and Jesus transformed the man. 
And for the rest of his life, like the next 50 years that he lived, he told everybody, Jesus saved me. Jesus transformed me. And he had an incredible life, an incredible impact, as we all know. But he never, ever changed that story. Jesus saved me. Jesus used Billy Graham. Jesus used my wife. Jesus used lots of... But Jesus saved me. I was so fried. This is wrong. You know, Janet, at this point, is tapping my hand. Honey, it'll be okay. She just graduated from college. You know, you know, forget the guy who just got up there and gave the lame uh, story. And I'm just frustrated. And, and there was this Greek family sitting behind me. And in the center was the, the matriarch, uh, a traditionally built Greek grandmother. And um, <laughs> this yaya, you know. And, and I heard her speaking Greek before the ceremony. And so at that moment, I was so frustrated. I just, oh. I just turned to her. And she's sitting there like this. <laughs> she was not having it. She was not happy with what that guy had just said about Louis Zamperini. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to light a little candle right here. A figurative little candle. I'm going to plant a little flag right here. Uh, I'm going to rebuke the darkness right now by looking at this dear Yaya and say, Christos Anesti. She started smiling. She goes, Alithos Anesti. Yeah, that's it. It's not about Louis Zimperini saving himself. He knew that was impossible. It was Jesus saving Louis Zimperini. That's why there's hope in the world. Because if Louis Zimperini can't save himself, who can? The man was tough. What he went through... Most men could not go through. And if he came to the point that he said, I cannot save myself. And Jesus saved him. I want to know the Jesus who can save Louis Zamperini. Because maybe he's the Jesus who could save me. Christos Anesti. Alithos Anesti. You see, there's power in the name of Jesus. Not superstitious power, lucky rabbit foot power. Cross your fingers, uh, make promises, don't walk over cracks, you know, avoid the black cats. Not superstitious power. There's power in the name of Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. Therefore, there's power in the cross of Christ. Not a piece of wood, no longer inhabited, but in what he is and what he has done. There's power in that empty grave. Not because it's an empty grave, but because of who he is and what he has done. He breaks the chains of indignity. He breaks the chains of injustice in us and on us and around us and through us. He attacks and confronts evil in all its forms, even death itself. He brings forgiveness. He gives restoration. He provides transformation by grace through faith in him. He gives us his resurrection power to live at a higher level, at the right hand of the majesty of God, one day at a time in this world, eyes wide open, fully engaged in the actual life we live. We have hope right now. We have hope out there in the future. All of it because he is Lord. Because of him, heaven came down to lift us up. Jesus lifts us to God who welcomes us in Jesus' name. And in the powerful name of Jesus, you are a saint. A saint just means one who's set apart, sanctified. Sanctified, santos, santo, saint. Because of who he is in you, you have a unique transformational identity. Saints aren't just dead religious people. They're living people in the name of Jesus. And saints are in development. So if you're walking with someone and you say, hey, I heard the guy talk about everybody being a saint. You're not much of a saint today. You're right today. But what I have today is the capacity as a saint to repent and say, Lord, forgive me and help me get it right.
that is a force to be reckoned with in the world. You are that force in the world if you are in Christ. A saint is a person alive in Christ. And so I ask, are you alive in Christ? Well, I believe. No, no, no. Are you alive in Christ? Do you know him? It's not just believing stuff. It's receiving him. It's knowing him, learning his ways, learning to listen to him. He wants to have a conversation with you that will never end. He wants to teach you how to listen to him, how to hear him, how to think like him so that you can be fully you. I was talking to a guy between services. He had a new kidney a few weeks ago. He said, man, this new kidney, I, I feel like I'm alive. I didn't realize how, how sick I was, but now I feel so alive. See, that's what I'm talking about. In the actual life you live, to be more alive, more of you than ever before, and a you that you like being. And when you see the parts of you that are coming back to take over the new you, you can say, no, I belong to Jesus. And so your sin will no longer define you. His grace will define you. Because that's where you turn, even in the face of your own sin and failure. Okay, that's, that's what's going on in me. God's working on it. I'm going with him. So believe in him. Receive him. By faith, be born again in him. By faith, return to him if you've been far away. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. And so, Lord Jesus, we honor you, we glorify you, we praise you because you are alive. And because of your grace given to us, because of your love for us, we can receive this life in us, that you can make us alive in you, transformed by you, saints in you, now and forevermore. And so in your name we pray. Amen.